0: Now, without further ado, this episode of the Daily Reprieve.
1: I'm sweating. Good night, everyone. My name is Zavia, and I'm a grateful, recovered sexaholic. (laughs) I'm honored and privileged to stand up here. I want to thank the committee and thank Bill and Tom for asking me to be here. Uh, I take my program pretty seriously. I never wear this kind of suit or tie. But I've listened to too many old-timers talk about it, and I figured that's appropriate. I'm a sexaholic. So before, you know, our stories tell in a general way what it used to be like, what happened, and what we're like now. Uh, but I've said I've, I'm a recovered sexaholic, and I want to offer a few suggestions uh, on how I see that. I'm a sexaholic it means I'm a member of Sexaholics Anonymous, a proud one. Uh, for me, it means I start my day on my knees, saying my morning prayers. Serenity prayer, first step prayer, third step prayer, and some others. Some prayers from my faith tradition as well. I try to go to three meetings a week. Try, try less, it didn't really work. Um, at least three meetings a week. I call three members every day to my best, try to do that best of my ability. And I also go to three, one or three conferences a year, might be an international. Might be an EMER one, EMER, Europe and Middle East Region one. Might be a local one or a workshop. Or I need you guys in my life. And my, my local meetings are not just enough. I do have a home group. And I'll speak a little bit more about that in a minute or two. I work the steps. I work the steps with a sponsor. A sponsor that has a sponsor. Because... I tried living my life before, running it by myself, and it didn't really work. Um, you'll get to hear more about that as well. And for some reason, I do service. Um, wasn't really sure about that in the beginning, but somehow God picked the sponsor, picked, picked sponsor from me that was always involved in service, and been, they really didn't give me any other chance. <laughs> so the way to do service is to have a really strong sponsor, otherwise... I don't understand why people are doing it. <laughs> I, to begin with, today I understand. I, I love doing service. So I'm a member of Sexaholics Anonymous. I'm actually, ooh, I'm actually an international member of Sexaholics Anonymous um, because I live outside the United States. <laughs> I remember where, um, where Bill um, told me that he that they're probably going to be an international outside of the U.S. and he's. He had a really simple reasoning. He said, well, I said some of the pe- I shared with some of the people my, my understanding. It's basically, you're either going to have conferences outside the United States or going to change the name because it's international, right? I like that. But anyway, the reason I'm saying I'm an international member is because I've had the privilege to go around the world for, for business and mostly for recovery. And everywhere I went, I was at home. And I've met people that I would never otherwise meet. I've seen faces. I've heard stories that otherwise I wouldn't have heard. And mostly, people just treated me so well. Everywhere I went, I went down to Memphis, and this guy bought plastic cups and a kosher cookie found in store just because he heard I need it when I'm visiting. I mean, you guys thought of me. And you guys treated me better than I treated myself. So I, um, I just love going around the world, um, meeting family, my new family, meeting SA members. I also said I'm a recovered sexaholic, and it's just my experience that my life had been transformed in such an extraordinary way that I cannot say I'm the same person I used to be like. So for me, uh, this is how I read the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, where it says we are men and women who have recovered from a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body. Now, I'm not cured, and you'll hear about that as well. I'm far from it, but I have recovered from what I all my life thought was a seemingly hopeless state of mind and body which leads to the last point what is a sexaholic well I'm going to share about that as well from what I've learned but as some of the guys in AA and some of the old timers here told me uh, sexaholism is a threefold illness. it starts with the allergy of the body the obsession of the mind and a spiritual melody and if one of these concepts is not familiar with you you're not familiar with one of these concepts, you better talk to your sponsor really soon. <laughs> Maybe right after this talk. <laughs> For some reason, many of the people in my country didn't, didn't know much about these concepts. Um, and so I had to get myself familiar with those, and I, I'm sharing it since. Um, it basically means I'm powerless over lust. It means my body reacts to lust differently than other people does. This is what an allergy is, I'm sure you all know. Uh, it's kind of different than uh, allergy to strawberries or peanuts, because when I take in lust, I don't break out a rash. Uh, but I do break out this phenomenon of craving which I can't stop. And this explains things, and this explains things in my life that otherwise I could not explain. When I was screaming to God, crying and kicking, telling him, look what I do for you. Even angels can't do that, meaning not act out because I have my computer in front of me and I had the urge to do it. And I don't do it. And I feel like I'm the bravest soldier of God for two days. (laughs) And then I do it again and I cannot explain. And I feel ashamed from all the angels looking at me laughing. And I don't know what, what happened. What happened? And this, you know, if I'm drunk from lust all the way on the bus, lusting after different people, then coming home, trying not to act out in the computer, it's like the alcoholic going to a bar at 6 p.m., promising himself just wanted to drink drinks, I'm back going to my wife and kids, right? And then at the 55th, uh, the 55th drink in 3 a.m. in the morning going out of the bar passing out on the, on the pavement, you know, that's after I finished acting out. And I always thought, you know, coming home, not acting out on the computer was my first drink, but I didn't realize I was drunk. So getting home, for me, was like after 30 drinks, trying not to take the 31 or something. You know what I'm saying? It's like it was too late. And I didn't know. I didn't know my problem was lost. I didn't know, you know, it's an addiction. I didn't know any of those stuff. So when I came into the program and I've heard these concepts, it made a whole lot of sense to me. Um, yeah. So that's basically it. So I try to tell in a general way what it used to be like, what happened and what, what it's like now. And, um, one thing I can assure you, it is a design for living. I really like the theme that, uh, for, that, for our convention. It's, uh, it really works. It's a design for living that really works. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm just so grateful to be here. So, I grew up in Jerusalem. Lucky me. Hardworking parents. Uh, my father was pretty violent, with me, specifically I was the only boy, two sisters. Uh, Physically violent, emotionally violent, verbally violent. We didn't get along. And since I was really young, I had this urgent need for male nurturing and love, and that wasn't very available to me. Uh, Early age, I remember I found a sex tape. My parents got divorced when I was 10. Uh, I knew it had something to do with the fact that he was violent with me and my mom couldn't stop him. So obviously it was my fault. Or so I thought back then. And so you understand, I was very curious guy, sensitive guy, and I was looking through my parents' stuff because that's what kids do. And I found a tape, a videotape. They used to have those. (laughs) And it says, how to improve your sex life. Well, some of the images in these videos are burned into my mind because that's how sexaholic minds work. They are different than other people's, you see. As I mentioned, you know, some people can watch... Go, you know, walking down the street, see a beautiful man, a beautiful woman, think whatever they think and move on. I've learned sexaholics not exactly that way. I'm, I'm not that way, at least. And I remember vividly a lot, of the, a lot of the images from those videos. And when I reflect on that today, what I realize is that this is where I've learned how to gain love. So... If you want to improve your life with someone you just have to do those stuff this is how you make people happy um, and so my parents we were my parents had their own company they worked in in, uh, in technology businesses and so we had computers early on and i got early access to the internet and i became hooked I remember the first time I, I was, I, I remember my first time I masturbated, it was around 13. My parents got the forest already, we were at Cousins for a holiday, and I just didn't felt like I belonged. I never measured up, I was very afraid, I was always less than you people, and I mean, my own dad didn't love me, why would you? Why would I love myself? And, Anyway, I'm with these cousins and, you know, they're a happy family. We're there because mom doesn't want to have the, do the holidays by herself, so we're there. Uh, it was probably the best loving thing she could do back then for us, but I, was, I just felt like I didn't belong and I was always running away and I found myself playing with myself in the bathroom and I discovered it. And I don't really relate exactly to how alcoholics... Talk about their first drink. But I can tell you this. I got relief. And I got relief I didn't know I need. And then all of a sudden, for a few seconds, I felt really good. Just Whoa. Quiet and good. And I thought it's not something I'm supposed to do and I was kinda twelve, and you probably all know, you know, the concept in my faith tradition I come from, we have this bar mitzvah thing where you become obligated and when you're 13, and I was like, hmm, I'm 12 and 10 months. (laughs) Whatever is that, whatever is that thing called, I'm going to do it for like two months, and then I'll stop. (laughs) (coughs) Well, I'm standing here today. (laughs) Obviously, it didn't work. And I literally remember myself thinking that after six, seven times, uh, that didn't work. Okay, so I was very ashamed of it. I was very uh, trying to hide it, and I realized I, I got this, I, I got, I get these thoughts about men, and that's not something you tell anyone about. And I was just very shameful. I'm not getting along with my friends anyway. And now I'm in swimming class and I watch them in the showers and all that. And that's, and I felt dirty and I felt wrong. And I was really miserable as if it wasn't bad before. And yeah, just find my way into pornography. You know, when you have to wait hours for one image to download. <laughs> I'm not that old. Which is, <laughs> I just had really early access to internet. <laughs> and, well, it was, it was really bad. And I remember one day going, coming back from school thinking, my God, Aviad, you are the worst thing. I mean, the most shameful thing. I mean, you're the only 15 year old in the world watching these things, this kind of stuff, when you were 40. And I know that's not true today, but this is how it felt. It felt like, you all you know what you're doing, and I'm just doing this stuff to feel a little bit better. And the only way I could make you love me or appreciate me in any way is, you know, learn some stuff that I could do to get your love. And this is just how I teach myself to live. So that that was my solution, as you taught me. And I, and I, and I understand that today. You know, lust was not my problem. It became my problem, but it started as my solution. And I didn't know that. And so, yeah, um, went through the teenage uh, years. Very shameful. daily, Daily masturbating, pornography, running away to deal with anything family moving moving cities school social anxiety the whole thing you know you know and then this this men stuff start bothering me when i was 17 18 and i start you know people start dating start talking about women and, of course, I had to show everyone I'm, I'm okay. So I think I had one girlfriend when I was 16 or something, just so it would seem cool. Um, I, was, I wasn't really interested. Um, I always wanted to have a family, though. I don't know if because I was determined to prove my father that I could do a better job, <laughs> you know, ego stuff or what, I don't know. But I always wanted to have a family with kids and a wife, and I couldn't explain it. And I was just, I, I, I finished high school. I went to this religious school, and I would just cry at nights, Just cry. I don't want this man in my head. Please take it away. Make it stop. I can't make it stop. Please make it stop. And I would do anything in my power to, to stop it, and I couldn't. And I got more religious. I have you know, considered therapy or whatever and it, it didn't go away and I was thinking, you know, I was analyzing everything I thought myself as a smart person, I don't know, people kept telling me it was kind of the way I succeeded in life, you know, I'd just be smart and you guys would like me uh, and you know I was a smart guy so I was thinking, thinking all the time and I couldn't solve it and I, I, I knew there was this this masturbation thing, this physical thing, but then this, this these man stuff, and it's just, that's a problem, and that's a problem. And like, it, was, it was a whole big mess, and I couldn't figure it out. Uh, there was round, one rabbi that really helped me, uh, hugged me a lot. He was like a, a father figure. Um, got really dependent on him. And he didn't add any answers. He was just hugging me, sometimes giving me, kisses in different places. Um, but that was just the love I was looking for. Uh, when I was a, around 18, I found a, found a therapist who was willing to help. He had this workshop, actually a powerful workshop, you know about sexual identity and stuff. And um, it was powerful. Then I, then I went to uh, private counseling with this guy, I uh, had to sign a form. He's not an, uh, an official psychologist. But, you know, he understands me and nobody else is willing to help. So let's try that one. Uh, that didn't turn out that well. Um, after three years, I, I, I did the army. I went back to therapy with this guy. After three years in therapy, he offered uh, a meditation workshop down south. Just me and him. And uh, and at another workshop, and then he invited me to his hotel room. Started touching different places, asked me how it feels, and you know, you know where it went. And so, here goes. Um, I was nineteen, out of the army, working shifts in a restaurant to pay to this therapist, and. Uh, Basically, he's telling me after three years, I'm not sure it's working, but let's try this other stuff. You know, I'm gonna teach you, you know, how to be in relationship. This for- sorry, this formal therapy doesn't really work. Let's try this informal therapy. And uh, well, I was desperate. I was willing to go to any length, you see. And so somehow it made sense. And here goes a year and a half of sexual relationship with that person. And I was all alone. So I had friends that went to that therapist, but I couldn't tell them what really happens, what's really happening between us. I couldn't tell my parents. I couldn't tell real therapists because they would just tell me to live the life I don't want to live. They would never try to understand me. And so I couldn't tell anyone. And he was the only one that could help me. I think the most amazing thing in SA today for me is that I only depend on God and a lot of his children, not just one. So I need all of you in my life. I remember... I remember before coming to, just a few months before I say, I remember, okay, uh, I'm jumping a little bit ahead, but I, was, I remember I was telling myself, I really need some, some guys in my life. I need to have some healthy relationships. I had this thought on the bus on my way from work back home, and I was like, God, please give me j- not just one person, because I messed that up, but give me some, a host of friends, and I, I and I, and then I immediately said, "Nah, you're, you're talking shit, Aviad. Sorry. I, in Hebrew, it's it's in Hebrew, we use that a lot. It's not as hard as it sounds in English. I'm sorry." <laughs> and I said. I basically said, damn you, Aviad, you're not going to get any friends. You wrecked, you ruined everything you had. You had friends from high school. You're not in touch with them. You had friends in the army. You're not in touch with them. You're basically a mess. You're not going to get any more friends. God gave you everything he had, and you just didn't handle it well. Uh, that was just three months before I came to SA. So never give up on yourself. God has better better plans for all of us, I guess. But anyway, after a year and a half of that with that in that relationship, quotes and quotes, um, I don't know. Some sense got into me, maybe God, and I realized, hmm, I went to this guy to stop thinking about men, but then I have sex with him and he's a man. <laughs> <laughs> that couldn't be it. <laughs> so I had to, I had to muster all the courage I had to tell this guy, We're not, I'm not going to see him anywhere anymore. And I remember where we were and which restaurant we sat down, and when I left there, I cried, because I knew that I had to break up this crazy thing, and I'm also giving up the only hope I have, or so I thought. And I just cried, and it was very, very lonely. Another year and a half, I thought, okay, I know this guy, I know his theory, I know the books he's counting on, I'll just buy one of those books and I'll do it myself. And, well, I gave up really soon. <laughs> I read the book. It was a really good book. And I really believed, and I still believe in most of the stuff they say. The theory there sounds pretty solid. Just didn't solve my problem, you know. I learned that in essay as well. The white book says power never gave, knowledge never gave us power. And so I was powerless without even knowing it. Well, another year and a half of loneliness TV binging, acting out, deep, 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 deep in my in my addiction. Um, I was from the outside. I have everything I I ever wanted, and I had everything my friends wanted. I had a job because I was early in university. My friends just started their lives. I already had a an adult adult kind of job and a and a big corporate. I was doing my bachelor degree, it was doing good. And I felt dead inside. I remember specifically looking at my phone. Nobody called. And I was just working and working. I mean, I was acting out doing work. Then I came home and had to work, acted out and try to work. I didn't study because I had to make up for work. And when I had to make up for work, I had to study, you know. <laughs> uh, Sexaholic, trying to manage his own life. Basically, um, classic, classic deal. And the truth is, and that's my point, I was hopeless. And I didn't look for any solution because I didn't thought there was one for me. Um, And then my friend came. So I had this friend who was really crazy. He was with this therapist as well. I met him. This guy was acting out anonymously almost every day on his smartphone or apps or whatever it was. And he was crazy. I'm I'm a tech guy. You know, I can block your phone if you want. You know, he said, oh, that's not going to work. I tried that, whatever. And he was just, he was crazy. You know, and I get some lust hits from listening to his stories. So we, you know, we were friends. (laughs) (laughs) I, I was jealous. He had the courage. I didn't have and then he just keeps telling me how he's doing this awful stuff, and, he, he's a, and his, his M.O. was like young man, so he started 18, but then he got lower, and he was very afraid. He got dangerous. And at some point, he called me one day. He said, I can't live that way anymore. I think I'm to talk to my rabbi. Okay. <laughs> and, uh, and then he told me he went to the rabbi, and the guy told him, dude, you're, you're, you're great. You're a good guy. You're just a sex addict go to USA and that guy gave him a number and this guy called me after a few days he can't believe what i found you don't know there's like there are groups and those people and they're young and they're old and they're all thinking about sex all the time like <laughs> me <laughs> and they pick up the phone every every time of the day you call them and they and i'm sober 3 days it was it was it was it was seven days, I think it was no, it was three days or a few days and he kept telling me it's amazing, you don't understand. And then after seven days he called me, he said, Listen, I'm sober seven days and three hours. <laughs> I said, these guys count hours. <laughs> what is this? And he said, You gotta you, we gotta meet, we gotta meet, we gotta talk about it. And I was like, Fine, fine, fine. So I met him up. He sneaked out one of these pamphlets. We weren't selling them at the, at the time. He sneaked out one of the booklets with the... With the it's, you call it the essay folder. And um, and he had the problem and the solution. We sat at this gas station outside of Mebrak. It was the the, the meeting he was attending. And he read out to me. He read the problem and the solution. Essays problem, essay solution. Those words were magic. It was just magic. And I... I, I He was kind of trying to read me, and it sounded too good. I said, give me that, give me that. I want to read it myself. It was, (laughs) I was too nervous. And um, it started to make sense, but I don't know. I wasn't an addict, you know. Really, I mean, addicts were like people on the streets, you know, with the needle and the drugs. I'm a smart guy, you know. I, I, I work on my bachelor degree. I work in a big corporate, you know. I got a nice family. I came from, you know, I can't be an addict. And he was pushing and saying, you know, he told me this. And I said, listen, I, might, I, I think I was an addict when I was 16, doing it every day, but I don't think I'm an addict anymore. <laughs> and he said, and you know what? He gave me the big book trick. I don't think he was even aware of that. By the way, he 12-stepped me. And back in those days, he didn't have a sponsor. And I'm telling you, I don't know. If he, had a spon- if he had a sponsor back then, his sponsor probably would tell him, "No, no, no! You just came. You're, you're sober ten days. Don't don't talk to anyone. You know, just work your program." He didn't ask anyone. He twelve stepped me and saved my life. And anyway, he came and he said, "You know, you may, you might not be a sexaholic. You know, sexaholics are people that cannot stop by themselves. They need the program. They need this fellowship and they need the program. But you might not be a sexaholic. So just let me know how you're doing." And I, and I was, <laughs> where did he got that from? <laughs> and um, he, um, can I get some water? Sorry, I forgot my glass. Um, and thank you. And, uh, and um, I was dating this girl back then for a few weeks and I really wanted to work. I wasn't attracted to her and I was messed up, but she was, she was a nice girl and I really wanted to work. So I figured this guy, I'm a suspect to sex, like I'm a sex I might be a sex addict or whatever that sexaholic thing means and I'm dating this girl. You know, I usually can stay abstinent from pornography I don't say sober because I didn't know what sober was, and I definitely wasn't sober. But I could stay abstinent from pornography, sometimes a few weeks, maybe a month. And I said, I'll do two months for them. I'll prove everyone I'm not a sexaholic. That was Monday. (laughs) (laughs) Saturday night... I remember I sat in the living room, I don't know what I did, and I I felt the urge. And I went to my bedroom, I closed the door, I took my laptop, I took the toilet paper, I had the whole ceremony, you know. (laughs) We have have rituals. (laughs) And you know what, I don't think I even wanted to do it, but my mind just said I have to. And I had that in recovery as well, early recovery. When I was staying, I, was, I remember exactly living room I was living with my mom and I, and I heard that voice in, your, in my head. Go act out, watch pornography, use that computer, you know where it is. And I said, what well, I don't want. I said, who asked you, idiot, go do it. And that's not funny. That was the voices in my head. And I fell down on my knees and I realized I'm really powerless, but that was in recovery. So my last acting out, I, ha- I guess I had that the same voice, and um, I just went in and found myself, you know, 5.30, quarter to 6 a.m., my, my mother's alarm go on. She's starting to wake up. I'm pretending I'm asleep because she usually wakes me to, w- to work because I'm a sexaholic and I need people to take care of me. Of course, after that, I would scream at her for waking me up, or, or even worse, when, when I wake up all of a sudden, it's 8 o'clock, and I'm calling her, why didn't you wake me up? And she said, I did wake you up. <laughs> you just can't remember. And I'm like, well, why didn't you wake me up? Uh, anyway, so um, it was a religious fast, so I said, oh, my God, I didn't have any sleep. I'm not going to eat the whole day. And I'm have to, and I have to go to work, and it was just I was sick and tired. I was sick and tired of being sick and tired. That's what you taught me. Um, I guess it was I guess it was uh, my first uh, my first gift of desperation. I called up this guy, my friend. and I said, you know what? Maybe I should check out those meetings. And he said, great. Well, there's one today, 1:30 p.m. And I was like, it's a day work, man. It's the middle of the day. Uh, Anyway, I said, fine. I left work. I don't know what excuse I gave them. I went into the room, and I I took a taxi, and I went to that meeting. And that was my first essay meeting. Um, And I'm sober since then. (laughs) I heard an AA speaker once says, I can't even remember the joke, but I'm just trying to say, you're clapping to my higher power, not me. I, I didn't do that, but you can clap again for God, that's for sure. <laughs> so I got there. Um, it was really weird. There was another religious guy talking to me about spirituality, and he asked me why, he asked me. Yeah, we, gave me the, 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 the newcomer interrogation, like, why are you here? Did you ever try to stop? Why are you coming to us and stuff? And I shared my story a little bit. And then he said, and he told me a little bit about program and started talking about God or something. He said, it's not a religious, it's just a spiritual program. But I see this religious guy talk to me about God. And I was like, you know, we have these different streams in, our, in my religion. And I said, well, I know everything about God. My God is better than yours for sure. And it didn't work. So don't sell me those stuff. But whatever, I, I said, you know, just let's hear the people. So I went into the meeting, and it was interesting. It was all sorts of people that were non-religious, all different streams of religious, and they were like sober. And one of them were sober two years, and he was sharing a little bit of his story for me as the newcomer, and he just celebrated last week two years. I said, two years, <laughs> that was crazy. And um, anyway, the, the only thing I remember—I can't remember anything from that from that meeting. The only thing I remember is that I was looking for a catch because they were really nice. They were trying to help, and I didn't trust anyone. You know, after that therapist, the sexually abused me, and I don't trust. I I, I surrendered my life to this guy. He was my friend, my therapist, my mentor, my my god, everything, and and and. And I knew something was off in that relationship. I couldn't even tell you what exactly. I just told myself that was something there was wrong. I should, should stop and think about it, uh, what really happened there. I wasn't even willing to admit it was a sexual abuse, but I was just um, but I just lost you know, trust in any person, in any human and, and God, of course. And so I didn't I was very reluctant, but I know was just, I was willing to take something from, from it and use it myself so I went in there I, I saw you had 12 steps I figured I read it in a book and I I reconciled I, reconcil- I, I, I d- identified that was my thinking I remember it it was like okay 12 steps 3-4 mm, months I'm out of here <laughs> you know <laughs> which reminds me I didn't share um, my sobriety date so uh, I'm glad to be by the grace of God and you people I'm sober sexually sober since December 23, 2012. So, <laughs> so that was about uh, seven years and three weeks ago. And um, whatever, what I, what I remember from that meeting is that I was looking for the catch, because, like, you know, that's how, my, that's how the Israeli mind works. Like, it couldn't be really good. Someone is trying to... You know, take something from me, they're trying to trick me, and I was looking for the catch. And then at the end of the meeting, they said, oh, well, we're self-supporting through our own contributions, uh, uh, so here's the basket, and you can put money in it. And I was thinking, oh, I know this trick. It's like those people that say, oh, d- we do it for free, we give you services, and they're like, and if you want, you can give donations. <laughs> and then they won't leave until you give them something, right? Right. <laughs> So I, I said, fine, okay, this is it. They want my money, like that therapist. And then they said, oh, newcomers don't give anything. Oh, and recommended donation is 10 shekels, which is like 2 dollars 5 And I'm like, I paid that guy 400 shekels an hour. I mean, I can handle 10, 10 shekels. So I'm reaching for my wallet, and they say, no, you're a newcomer, we don't need your money. You don't put any money in the basket. If you, do, if you come again, you can put something in a basket, but we don't want your money. And that, that was very powerful for me because I don't understand. So they're, they're doing it for what? For spirituality? For good? Like, what is this? I didn't believe it's, it's true. Um, but throughout the years, I realized that you guys are doing it for free and for fun and because you love doing it and because you see the light in those people, what I see today, the light in those people, those newcomers that I share my story and they got this light in their eyes and they say, wow, maybe, maybe, maybe this guy knows what he's talking about. Maybe it's like me. Maybe this program can work for me too. So so I understand that today. And yeah, so that was my first meeting. And so what I, what I, what I reflect on that today is that 12-stepping is really important. And I'm not talking about sponsoring people in the fellowship. I'm talking about going out there talking to people that are dying from untreated sexualism and they don't even know they have it. And sure thing, I had a friend who turned out to have same, unwanted same-sex attractions like Had had, and we found it out. Found, he found out about it. He was really mad. I was in treatment for it, and I didn't tell him. Thank God I didn't tell him about that therapist, but he was angry at me, so as soon as I found out about say I went telling him. And since then, I think you no know, 12-stepping people, it's really important. And I would never stop anyone from 12-stepping. So if my sponsee is sober a day or an hour or a week or whatever, he wants to tell someone, you know, we have that conversation, you know, if, if it's your wife, maybe, you know, we should, we should talk about it and stuff like that. But if, you're 12, if you think someone has a problem, go do it, you know? Uh, there's a line in the big book. It says, you know, with you know, with these motives, go at a fire line, with these motives, and God would keep you, or something like that, right? So no matter where you are, don't miss an opportunity. Yeah. And um, yeah, so that was my first meeting. I went to a lot of meetings. Um, you guys told me three, you know, to take a sponsor go to three meetings. Three meetings? I'm going to two. And I'm like, I'm doing it for you. I mean, I don't get it. Three meetings. So I started slowly, slowly. I started going to three meetings. And then they keep talking about these old-time, old timers that came into Israel. And we're going to talk about that later on. But this is how our fellowship in Israel grew. Basically, one guy from the UK came to Israel and said, what, you got four meetings in our no winter group? Sit right here. You're the chair. You're the secretary. <laughs> throw up a conference, and get an old-timer to teach you how to work these steps. That's what they did. And, and they brought in Harvey, and then I think Mike Seed and Bill. And that was all before I came. And so when I came, this guy come up to me and say, oh, so I remember the first phone call I got. So after that meeting, a few people exchanged phone numbers. I didn't know why. I'd say said, call any time. I said, I'm not going to call anyone. <laughs> and I remember one of the guys in Ireland told me when my first convention, actually it was in Warsaw, it was this guy from Dublin, um, forgot his name, and he told me, you know, Javier how many phone calls do you do a day? Well, pff, I get a lot of phone calls, ten phone calls I do at least. You know, I get some, I call some. And he said, is it hard? I said no, I'm talking to friends in recovery every day. He says, you remember how how heavy the phone was when you were a newcomer? So when you, so call newcomers. So today I try to practice that when I, when there's a newcomer in a meeting, I don't give him my number, he won't call. I ask for his number and then I, you know, I, I call him so he'll have mine, but I take his number because they won't call. So anyway, I didn't, I didn't call, but I, like two days after the meeting, I remember someone called me say, hey, uh, hey, it's away from the meeting, remember me? I said, yeah. He said, uh, do you have a minute? Do you have a minute? I just want to share something real quick. I say, yes, yes, please. So I'm, in, I'm on the bus, and I'm completely parous of lust. There's a lady here. I just want to share that. Please, God, take it away. Thank you for listening. Okay, bye. <laughs> <laughs> what was that? <laughs> well, that was the practice that's going to save my life. And it was, it was just sharing, you know. And now I know, you know, I got my prayers... If I, have, if I see someone on the street, if I got a recall, if I have a temptation, I do the prayers. Any prayer, the white book or the big book goes, God, please help me. God, please take it away. Make her a blessing. Whatever I look for in lust, may I find in you. If that doesn't work, I call a member and I share. So that was the first thing you guys taught me. And then this guy told me, oh, but you have to do explicit sharing. And I was like, what is that? And then he says, well, you have to tell everything that's on your mind. And, you know, it's, it's in the white book. It says, we, we, I think it's the 18-wheeler, maybe number five or six, taking the inside out. It's like we did it with specific events, not in a general way. And there was one old-timer who came to Israel and says, yeah, I said, sponsor, do I have to be really specific? And he said, well, do you want like a general recovery or a really specific <laughs> one <laughs> just for you? So I had to be specific. And if that wasn't enough... This guy told me, like I was three weeks sober, this guy told me there's an Israeli convention, like the whole convention, or the whole country, you should go. I was like, what do you mean? All the sexaholics in Israel and me in the same room, what do you mean? It's like, there were only about 80 of them back then. Um, Now our national conventions are like, what, 400, 500 people. So... So eighty people, eighty sexaholics. I mean, the same room. I don't think it's gonna work. And and he said it costs money to register. And I said I don't know. And, he, and the guy just no. It just he was a great sexaholic, and he just said, you know, how much do you pay for a prostitute nowadays? And someone said I don't know three hundred. Said well the the convention is one hundred and eighty. And personally, I never went to a prostitute, but I know I paid that guy. Um, a lot of money, and even one time he shamed me. He told me I don't love him or something, and I had to prove it. So I, you know, I booked like 1,800 shekels um hotel room for for us. And so I said mm, 1,800, 180, I can bear with it. So I went to this Sexaholics Anonymous winter conference or something, great speakers, and then. They, they, there was, uh, we were doing it with the English fellowship in Israel and they wanted translation and someone with the whole thing with the explicit sharing stuff they sent me into someone told me to go to, the, to that session where they have fetishes and shameful secrets and if that wasn't enough the, the, the translator was really bad and I, I was really in control and I really had to fix him and so he just quit it and I said fine I'll take it Uh, and I don't know anything about recovery, and I just know some English, and I just started translating. And then I realized I have to translate all the secrets and all the fetishes of all these people in the room to English. (laughs) That was an experience. (laughs) But I'll tell you one thing. It took the shame out of it, and that was my miracle. The other miracle I had, and Denise shared it earlier today, I went to the first, I went to the first meetings I went to, and I felt very different, because you see, these guys were normal, they were watching pornography, they were going to prostitutes, they were looking, some of them looked pretty good, and I was crazy. Oh, I had to stop. (laughs) 45 minutes, really. Okay. Wow. Wow. That did not go as I thought. I'll, I'll, have to, I'll have to take just a couple more minutes. Uh, anyway, I had to surrender my lust because there are men all around and it, I had to realize lust is in my head. Uh, I somehow missed the signs um, and I had so much more to share but I just wanted to tell you that I was rocketed into the fourth dimension Or whatever that means my life has changed dramatically Um, I've learned so much from you people I wanted to talk about my home group you probably all saw my shirt and the shirts we had Uh, I think home groups are where the recovery is because our fellowship keeps growing and so home group is where it is Just to not keep you uh, um, in the dark. So I got married in recovery. You guys taught me how to date, how to take lust out of my head. When the lust was out of my head, all of a sudden I had feelings. I had feelings for women. I had feelings I never knew. I met my wife. We got married. I'm sexually attracted to her. We have an amazing relationship. Isn't perfect at all. But we're open and honest about those stuff. Um, I got two little kids. Beautiful, beautiful kids. And they are a miracle, like I am. And now I mean, I, I i grow them and I take care of them, but they're as yours as as they are mine. And it's just been seven years, and my sponsor tells me it just keeps getting better and better. And I'll just say this. I'll wrap up with this. The fellowship in Israel has grown tremendously, and I remember nobody worked the steps out of the big book as I wanted because I listened to all these recordings, and I was complaining to Harvey that... Our meetings are like, not like in Nashville. And he said, what do you think? Everybody in Nashville are sober? Come on. <laughs> but I had to compare, and I had to think I'm miserable. But anyway, that has changed. And we have a, my home group, and I'll finish with this. My home group is around 40 to 50, uh, between 50 to 70 people every week. Once a, once a month, we have an open meeting. Um, my mother and my mother-in-law and a few therapists was there last Tuesday. We have regular business meetings, we got around five to seven women attending regularly, and we didn't do all that, we just followed the principles, we followed your lead, we did what you told us, and it worked. And I just want to finish with this, Uh, page 164 of the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. It says, what I always feared, you know, that I could only listen to those recordings and hear those war stories from you old timers, but it would never happen to me, you know, somewhere in Israel, in Jerusalem. And it did. And it says, you still may say, but I will not have the benefit of contact with you, you who wrote the book, or you guys who started SA. We cannot be sure. God will determine that. So you must remember that your real reliance is always upon him. He will show you how to create the fellowship you crave. If I could do it, you could do it too, everywhere in the world. Thank you.